Good evening, everybody. Good to see you all. Uh, welcome to uh, the inaugural event in a Nineveh, in a Nineveh, in a newish series. Law matters discussion. We uh, sent that out to various focus groups, and it came back as a very positive feeling. Law matters, and. Uh, this is the inaugural one, so you're very welcome. I'm, uh, I'm up there, where am I? There I am, I'm the chair, Conor Geerty. I work at LSE and I'm in the law department and uh, the very first person we wanted to have in this series is my colleague here and friend, Jill Pia. Jill is a professor uh, with us in uh, LSE. She's uh, written a book that you'll be familiar with on mental health and crime, has also been involved in policy, research and so on in this most sensitive of subjects and we thought that it would be a very good idea to inaugurate this series with Jill, so I'm delighted she's here, delighted. And the point of the series is that we have somebody in LSC, Jill, and then we bring people in who have associations with, or friends with, LSC, and they provide some comments, so we're delighted to have, I think it's going to be Tim first, Tim uh, Exworthy, clinical director it says to me here, consultant forensic psychiatrist at St. Andrews Hospital. Uh, I'm told you've taught here, Tim. Correct? I have, yes. And that you have a master's in mental health law. <laughs> we told him a few years ago that if he got his master's with a good degree, we'd invite him here, and he's done very well. Uh, so it's great to have you. And uh, Anita's a great friend of LSE, Anita Duckley, who's uh, been responsible for the What If lecture series in the Mannheim, and also. Uh, is research director, not a research director, the research director for the Howard League for Penal Reform. So the whole point of this is intellectual engagement and exchange. Jill starts 30 minutes or thereabouts on this uh, well, statement, no question mark, a manifest injustice. And then we have Tim for about 10, 10 plus Ten plus a little bit, and then we have Anita, ten or thereabouts, and the whole point is to get you guys involved. So after that, we're here till about eight o'clock, uh, and we're trying to draw you in to a discussion on imprisoning the mentally disordered and manifest injustice. So I hope you enjoy this evening, and I'm going to hand over to Jill. Jill. Thank you, Connor, and thank you, everybody, for pitching up this evening. Um, you could see immediately that uh, the question mark had gone missing because it's certainly there in what I'm going to be talking about. I made a whole point about there being no question mark. <laughs> the question mark. <laughs> okay. Um, my starting point is that um, there are a disproportionate number of mentally disordered people in prison. Prison largely exacerbates mental ill health. 
This has been a persistent problem and it applies across jurisdictions. And that should make us all reflect quite seriously upon whether the traditional objectives of imprisonment are indeed attainable. What I'm not going to be talking about are offenders whose offending may have been caused or contributed to by their underlying states. Here it's much easier to establish uh, that there's been an injustice, but arguably quite difficult to fix. Um, the Law Commission are currently addressing both insanity, automatism and unfitness to plead, and I'm not going to be saying anything more about those issues or those people. Instead, I want to try and address the rather more subtle issue of whether, given that someone has been justly convicted, it's manifestly unjust then to imprison people who are suffering from mental disorder. It's certainly not unlawful to do that, either under the ECHR or indeed in respect of our own Criminal Justice Act 2003, which explicitly recognises the alternative route of disposal under the Mental Health Act to hospital, but thereby implicitly supports the notion that it is possible and routinely done to sentence people to prison under the Criminal Justice Act. Okay, to cut to the chase, um, my answer to the question as to whether or not it is a manifest injustice is an equivocal no. Um, there clearly are significant elements of injustice which can be identified, but I think probably not a manifest injustice. So why am I bothering to address this? Well, I think it's important because mentally disordered offenders are not some easily identifiable group. So the arguments that I'm going to make um, will arguably apply to a greater or lesser degree across the prison population as a whole. So, is it unjust to subject those individuals with mental disorder to imprisonment given the possibility that imprisonment will either result in their disorder not receiving the quality of treatment they could have received had they not been imprisoned, or exacerbate their disorder, or possibly even in some vulnerable individuals illicit mental disorder. Here is not the place for an examination of the concept of justice. Suffice it to say that our conceptions of what is unjust in this field may be much easier to identify than what is just. As Tony Bottoms memorably observed, uh, desert is an asymmetrical concept. So we can probably all agree that the image of the frankly psychotic individual chained in a dungeon, um, even if they've committed the most heinous of criminal offences, would uh, probably stick in our respective craws as um, morally unjust. But would we, do we, uh, have the same response to the image of a personality disordered offender detained in a modern prison, clean, well lit, with appropriate in-reach medical facilities. Does that strike us as unjust? Probably not. That of course leaves the middle group, people whose disorders are not adequately treated as a result of their imprisonment or where prison exacerbates an underlying condition and these are much more difficult cases. 
Now, my argument about potential injustice lies more in the realms of contravening widely held public values, those of compassion for the sick and disabled and of support for the needy. Now, I don't think I'm treading on controversial ground here because whilst punitive values undoubtedly inform some elements of public opinion with respect to offenders generally, Research has repeatedly shown that when more is known about those offenders and about the efficacy of the various interventions made in the name of punishment, the public are much more understanding. For example, in the Roberts et al. research from 2009, 61% of the public responded that when sentencing someone being treated for depression at the time of the offence, the offender should receive a more lenient sentence, in some cases, with 15% saying this should happen in most or all cases. Finally, in terms of my preliminary remarks, um, it's notable that the Sentencing Council have not yet tried to provide systematic guidance on issues of impact in sentence. This area has been the subject of a very good and lively debate between Susan Easton and Christine uh, Piper at Brunel University, but not specifically with relation to mentally disordered offenders. Okay. So, are there disproportionate numbers of mentally disordered people in prison? Okay. This table comes from the work of Fazel and Balijuran. Um, the figures are based from 2010, and they're based on an analyses of a number of publications with large-scale survey data of imprisonment in Western countries, and compared it with the general population. Now, to those familiar with the field, there's nothing unusual in these figures, um, but I think they are shocking to those who are unfamiliar. And what is even more shocking is that we've known about this in this country since John Gunn's study in the 1970s. This is not a new problem. Three things to note. First, the raised levels of the most serious forms of mental illness. Second, that the there's a striking disparity um, in the figures relating to diagnoses of personality disorder, which do now come under the Mental Health Act, um, and particularly antisocial personality disorder with respect to female offenders. Now, of course, where a diagnosis partially embraces behaviours that are going to be criminalised, um, there's quite likely to be a significant overlap between these two populations. But of course, treatment intervention with this group are, is particularly problematic, and it's not really clear whether our treatment endeavours are trying to address the underlying criminality or indeed the disorder. Third, the very high levels of drug misuse and dependence, which does not fall under the Mental Health Act's definition of mental disorder. Now, those international figures can be compared with the work uh, done by Singleton et al. in 1998. Now, these are the figures that are most routinely relied on in this country. Um, and the real problem here is that we don't have any recent or proper update of this area. As the Ministry of Justice observed only this year, the proportions of mentally ill in the prison population are not measured routinely, so the actual change over time is unknown. By comparison with the international literature, there are clearly higher levels of psychosis in our population and higher levels of intellectual disability. 
But one, the other thing that emerged from the Singleton study is that they argued that only one in ten of the prison population showed no evidence of the five mental disorders they assessed. More worryingly, when you look at comorbidity, as Brooker et al. have done, something in the region of 12 to 15 percent of prisoners have four or five coexisting mental disorders. So, mental disorder is commonplace. Severe mental disorder and those with complex mental health needs form a significant proportion of the sentenced prison population. So, if we just assume that we're only average for psychosis in our prison population, with a, uh, with a population of 76,000 convicted prisoners, some 2,700 will have functional psychosis today. Secondly, um, I, mean, that's, I mean, that's pretty worrying in itself, but secondly, um, I think the more difficult statistics relate to the significant levels of mental disorder generally. If only one in ten of the prison population showed no evidence of mental disorder in its broadest form, then the argument that I'm trying to set out is not one based on the need for exceptional measures with respect to those with mental disorder. It's an argument that applies to 90% of the prison population to a greater or lesser extent. Now, there are three other things that um, I want to just touch on before I get to the meat of what I'm going to say. Firstly, keeping prisoners safe. I think there are very real questions you can ask about whether or not prison is an appropriate environment in which to hold people who have mental disorders. The safety and custody statistics uh, published this year for the year up to March 2013 show that there were 51 self-inflicted deaths, 22,000 plus incidents of self-harm, over 14,000 assaults and two homicides in our prison population. Good news is suicide is down, but at 61 per 100,000 prisoners, this suicide rate is something like seven times the rate of, the, of suicides in the general population. Again, we are not exceptional here. This is a common statistic found internationally. Partly it's because we select into imprisonment people who are already at risk of suicide. But secondly, the conditions into which we put them certainly don't assist with their mental health. But we're unable to ascertain whether or not fluctuations in our suicide rate relate to fluctuations in the degrees of mental disorder we have in the prison population because we don't measure the degrees of disorder in the prison population. Secondly, the remand population. I think we need to be very, very careful about holding people with mental disorder within our remand population. Um, these are unconvicted people. And the research again that Singleton et al. did demonstrated that amongst that remand population, 5% of them had previously been admitted to a locked ward or to a secure unit. So these were people with a very serious history of psychiatric disorder. The third issue is about keeping prisoners humanely. Again, this isn't an issue on which I'm going to dwell. Anita Dockley will have far more experience of this than I will. Um, but from the recent reports just this year from Her Majesty's Inspectors, Inspectorate of Prisons, if you look at HMP Bristol, 
Uh, they noted that single cells continued to be used to dub for double occupancy, much of the prison was dirty, and there were complaints of infestations of cockroaches. More worryingly, of the prisoners held at the time of the inspection, um, they observed that prisoners who identified themselves as having a disability reported more negatively than other prisoners about victimisation and feeling safe. So prisoners with a disability um, feel vulnerable in prison. Second, um, issues of inhumane treatment do occur. Um, the report from uh, Bronzefield this year uh, the inspectors, uh, I quote from the report, we were dismayed that the woman who had already been in segregation unit for three years in 2010 was still there in 2013. Her cell was unkempt and squalid and she seldom left it. Although more activities have been organised for her and better multidisciplinary support was available, she still had too little to occupy her. Her prolonged location on the segregation unit amounted to cruel, inhumane and degrading treatment and we use those words advisedly. The treatment and conditions of other women held for long periods in segregation was little better. So, it's not a very edifying picture. Moving on. Does the presence of mental disorder in the prison population undermine the legitimate purposes of imprisonment? Okay. Imprisonment fulfills a number of objectives. Conventionally, these are thought of as punishment, deterrence, incapacitation and rehabilitation. Now, I've got one important caveat here. Um, there is a coherent retributivist argument with which I agree um, that if you have the capacity to offend, that is, you autonomously made choices that had the detrimental effects on others, then it's right and proper that you should suffer some intervention for those choices that treats you as an autonomous individual and doesn't respond to you solely and wholly on the basis that you coincidentally have a mental disorder. Such an approach affords those with mental disorder the same dignity as those without. There is a proportionate rebalancing by the state of the inequalities caused by the offender. So, the proportionate deprivation of liberty is a punishment that can legitimately be imposed on those with mentally disordered, in the same way that it can be posed on the mentally ordered. Similarly, with incapacitative strategies, albeit offenders uh, who are mentally disordered are more likely to have judgments made about them, arguably unjustly, with respect to their likely dangerousness. And that, in turn, will mean that they will have much greater difficulties demonstrating they're safe to be released. There's a whole argument that you can make about this, and it's one that's been addressed very well by Smuckler and Rose. Um, but I, I think the only thing I want to say here is that um, there are disproportionate numbers of people with mental health problems within our indeterminate sentenced population. And Rutherford has shown that very clearly. That said, punishment without hope, that is punishment in its purest form, is one that is unacceptable for all offenders. And the ECHR has most recently observed um, this to be the case when thinking about uh, a case concerning those on whole life tariffs. And uh, Judge Power Ford observed um, about this situation 
To deny prisoners the experience of hope would be to deny a fundamental aspect of their humanity, and to do that would be degrading. Okay. So if pure punishment can be regarded as, de as degrading, does this in turn raise interesting questions about the capacity of the person undergoing punishment as retribution to understand that it is intended to have proportionate limitations? So there's, there's that problem. But I want to move now into the area of deterrence and rehabilitation because I think the issues here are more complex. Here, what is required of an offender is rather more. These are objectives that require an element of interaction with the offender. That is not simply things that are done to them. And here, the question of the offender's capacity to respond comes into play. Capacity is issue determined. Okay, so I have the capacity to decide whether or not I want a cup of black coffee knowing the risks, but I clearly never had the capacity to take out an endowment mortgage because I did not understand the financial risks I was taking. Equally, offenders may have the capacity to plead guilty to an offence without necessarily having the capacity to respond appropriately to the interventions that follow. Now, conflicts between the objectives for treatment and the objects of in incapacitation are commonplace. But equally, uh, questions can be asked about the capacity of those with, for example, severe learning disability to engage with sex offender management programs or anger control courses, of depressed or psychotic offenders to recognise the consequences of their actions, or of personality disordered offenders, perhaps those with psychopathy, to have the capacity to show and feel the remorse that's required within a number of cognitive behavioural programs. And worryingly, some of the international literature from Holland shows that it is those very offenders, those people who have diagnoses of psychopathy, who are most likely to be quickly rejected from the kinds of programs that we offer them to address their difficulties. So um, all I want you to do at this point is really to, to think about whether our conception of the typical offender as the subject of our penal philosophies fits the reality of our prison population with all of the cognitive and behavioural limitations prisoners display to say nothing of the challenges there are to their literacy rates and the language difficulties with which our prison service must struggle. So, um, all of that's problematic. Now, you might say, well, if they've got acute psychiatric problems, why don't we just simply shift them into the psychiatric system? Well, that's also very problematic. Um, there is a very real problem of availability of beds within uh, the psychiatric system, and as you probably heard this morning, uh, we were told that 1,500 beds have been lost in the mental health sector since April 2011. So transfer is not the solution to this problem. Right, uh, moving on. Um, treatment in prison. Two types of discrimination can arise with respect to mentally disordered offenders. The first concerns a failure to provide an equivalence of mental health service to that which would have been provided had the prisoner not been justly convicted. Um, this arguably makes punishment unjust in its nature in that it impacts more harshly on vulnerable mentally disordered offenders because of the further damage that gets done to them. Um, or by the failure to remedy what might have been remedied had they been in the community. Now, 
The NHS took over responsibility for uh, mental health services in uh, April 2006 and the notion was that we're supposed to have an equivalence of care between what we offer in prison and what we offer outside. Um, Tim Exworthy and his colleagues have done really excellent work looking at the quality of those mental health services and they have concluded that mental health in reach services still fall far short of community equivalents and there is wide variation in service arrangements that cannot be explained by prison size or function and indeed in some prisons there were no mental health in reach teams at all. Now, you might say, is equivalence what we really want to be aiming for? And Tim Exworthy has rightly argued that it's not equivalence of standards that we want, but equivalence of objectives and outcomes. Because if you've got a much greater need amongst the population in prison, what you need is a much greater injection of services in order to attain the same standard. And that is problematic. Second kind of discrimination arises out of an arguable medicalisation of criminality which cannot apply to those offenders who do not have mental disorders and the argument arises in this way. Those with mental disorder with capacity cannot be treated against their will in a prison setting. That's the same situation as for mentally ordered offenders. However, mentally disordered offenders can be transferred to hospital against their will where they can then be treated under the terms of the Mental Health Act. And this is particularly important. Um, Again, this isn't an issue I don't have time to address fully here, but it certainly was one that was addressed by the Richardson Committee in 1998. And I think it cuts most deeply with respect to the detention of offenders with antisocial personality disorder reaching the end of a determinate sentence, who are then transferred to hospital um, on the grounds of the nature of their underlying disorder but who are then detained there on the basis that they continue to pose a risk to the public. So, there's that kind of issue. The other issue that there is concerns the vulnerability of prisoners to treatment coercion. Now, prison is an inherently coercive environment. Prisoners are made to do all sorts of things they wouldn't otherwise do if they weren't in prison and they engage in them because they believe it's going to enhance the prospects of their release. Treatment coercion for mentally disordered offenders is arguably greater because of the explicit backdrop that the possibility of coercion under the Mental Health Act forms. So the question you need to ask yourself is to what extent when someone says yes to treatment in prison they are doing so voluntarily or they are doing so under that explicit coercion. And the General Medical Council are alive to this issue and they have advised doctors that doctors should do their very best to make sure that such, pa such patients, such prisoners, have, con have considered the available options and reached their own decision. If they have a right to refuse treatment, you should make sure that they know this and they're able to refuse if they want to. So, put simply, prison is a coercive environment, not obviously compatible with the voluntary engagement with treatment. 
Um, it's one other thing I ought to say. Um, I do accept that for some offenders, a sentence of imprisonment might provide um, an opportunity to access both mental and physical, mental health, uh, physical health services that were not accessed in the community. So some people are better off in health terms in prison. Um, this is notably the case for black and ethnic minority offenders and for men with depression. But whilst it may be advantageous for such groups to gain access to services via prison, I would argue it's unjust for others to be denied access as a result of imprisonment. So there's a difference between failing to access something that was available in the community but is available in prison and being unable to access something that is available in the community but to which access is denied by reason of imprisonment. Um, I'm getting towards the end of my time, I can see that. So I'm just going to talk very briefly about the remedies before I wrap up. Yeah, don't forget I waffled on a bit. So you have Did about, you waffle on a bit? Yeah, you have about seven minutes. Good grief. Okay, <laughs> all right. Um, first thing is we clearly need better data. Uh, There's just a dearth of really good data. Secondly, I would very much support Andrew Ashworth's argument um, about proportionality and property offences. About this time last year, he made a very important lecture in the What If series, um, which is organised by Nita Dockley and from the uh, Howard League and by the Mannheim Centre here. And what he was arguing is that it is disproportionate to send people who have just committed property offences to prison. Okay, there are all sorts of other things you can do with them in the community. And he argued that something like 26,000 receptions of prisoners into prison would be prevented if we went down that route. It would reduce the male population by 8%, the female population by 21% if you got rid of property offenders out of prison. Now, that is an argument that applies equally to mentally ordered and mentally disordered offenders, because mentally disordered offenders commit the same kinds of offences that mentally ordered offenders commit. So you find them in that low level tier of offending. So getting those people out of prison would be a great way of trying to address something about the awfulness of our prison conditions. Um, secondly, there are all sorts of things we could do on the diversion front throughout the criminal justice system. We have a policy which says we should be diverting mentally disordered offenders from prison. Uh, we don't do desperately well at it, as you can tell from the statistics. Um, and there are a number of diversion programmes that have been shown to be actually really quite effective in addressing these difficulties. So diversion is certainly well worth thinking about. Um, sentencing. There is a power under the Mental Health Act at the point of sentence for the judge to say this person is so disordered they need to be in hospital, not in prison. And they can divert people irrevocably into the psychiatric system. Um, if you look at the figures for 2008, uh, there were over 100,000, um, 100,348 uh, people um, were sent to prison. Of that, 0.73% got hospital disposals, less than 1%. And yet, in that year, we know some 3,600 people <coughs> were sentenced to imprisonment who would probably have had the most severe form of psychiatric disorder. 
So, I think there's something that we need to do about the use of the Mental Health Act at that point. Mitigation. Um, the Sentencing Council guidelines do point to mental disorder as one of the general bases for mitigation. My question is, should more allowance be made given the relationship between the psychological state of the offender and the purposes of imprisonment? And I certainly think, and I would certainly encourage the Sentencing Council to look ex explicitly at that issue with respect to impact in sentencing. Transfer to hospital, well, transfer would be great. We do transfer a number of people every year. We probably don't transfer enough. We certainly don't transfer them quickly enough. But as I've already said, there's a bed problem, so it's not an easy solution. Um, I think Tim's suggestion about the provision of equivalence of objectives, not standards, in terms of the quantity and quality of mental health services that we inject into the prison system, it, definitely needs support. So, there are a number of things that we could do. Um, so, I would conclude by saying um, many prisoners perceive themselves to be unjustly convicted. Uh, my concern here has been whether we should have greater concerns about the position of mentally disordered offenders in prison with respect to the justness of their circumstances there. Whether imprisoning the mentally disordered is a manifest injustice uh, depends upon the circumstances in which their conviction came about, which I haven't dealt with, uh, the kind and severity of mental disorder the prisoner is suffering from, what treatment is available in prison for their mental disorder, and whether they are able to give voluntary, that is, non-coerced, fully informed consent to that treatment. There are also some questions I think we can ask about the legitimacy of a sentence of imprisonment, which apply both to the mentally ordered and to the mentally disordered offender, but which have a greater purchase with respect to those with mental disorder. And I think we need to think of all of that, about all of that in the light of the offender's capacity to respond to the overarching purposes of imprisonment. There isn't any easy solution to this. It's, it's clearly not, not a question of just moving people. Um, and in any event, for a proportion of our mentally disordered prisoner population, they are rightly and justly in prison. But what I would argue is that thinking about the prototypical offender as an offender with a high probability of experiencing some mental health difficulties rather than as a kind of wholly rational, calculating, controlled offender should cause us to think um, a little more carefully about how we use such a costly resource as imprisonment. And what is source for the mentally disordered offender applies in large measure to the gander who are our imprisoned population. Thank you. Terrific. Great. Uh, Tim. Well, thank you very much. Um, thank you to Jill for inviting me, and I do mean thank you. <laughs> um, it's nice to be back at uh, LSE. Uh, there weren't quite so many in the audience the last time I came. Um, I do agree with Jill that the answer to the question posed is an equivocal no. Perhaps 20 or maybe 10 years ago, the answer might have been more unequivocal and perhaps weighted towards the affirmative. Let me expand on that. 
This is a quotation that I often use in talks that I give uh, around this topic because it illustrates many of my thoughts. Imprisonment as a punishment extends only to the deprivation of liberty. Prison should not add to that punishment by also depriving people of other human rights and my particular interest would be around access to health care. The steps that have been taken in recent years have achieved much in improving access to appropriate mental health care for the mentally disordered. And perhaps at this point I should qualify that, that when we talk about this, as in so many other areas, when we say mentally disordered, we're really meaning uh, mentally ill, those suffering conditions such as schizophrenia uh, or depression or bipolar disorder. In other words, as Jill was pointing out, we tend to ignore the, the needs of the personality disordered or those with dependence on illicit substances, and that is an issue in itself. You might be used to the idea of signposting services. Well, I'm going to take a twist on that and use road signs to illustrate part of this talk. Hopefully you can see that. It's a slightly, it was taken on a summer's day in Camberwell. Um, this can be taken as an early depiction of the process of diversion from custody. One heads either to court in the criminal justice system or one goes to hospital representing the health system. It was a dichotomous choice. You went in opposite directions. Diversion started in the late 1980s and was designed to circumvent the practice of remanding into custody for psychiatric reports to mentally disordered many of whom had committed offences so minor that they would not have ordinarily attracted a custodial disposal. The general principle was to divert these people away from the criminal justice system and into the health and social care system. Nowadays, and I apologise, I could not find a sign that said access, access only, maybe overly dramatic. Nowadays, it's more about access. The most recent review of the concept and process of diversion was conducted by Lord Bradley, who published his report in 2009. By that stage, the definition had changed, it had shifted. It was described as a process whereby people are assessed and their needs identified as early as possible in the offender pathway, thus informing subsequent decisions about where an individual is best placed to receive treatment taking into account risk, etc. In other words, the presumption in favour of the health system has disappeared and the emphasis is on providing treatment where the person happens to be. Or put another way, the priority is not on diversion but access to health care. Uh, ten years ago, David James, who was very instrumental in setting up court diversion schemes in London, published with colleagues an occasional paper through the, the Home Office on diversion and he wrote that diversion was a social consensus that the sick should be treated rather than punished and that this policy was reinforced by pragmatic considerations. Firstly that people cannot be treated in prison against their will because the Mental Health Act doesn't operate there as we've heard. Second that prisons don't have the resources to treat the mentally unwell and third, that prisons are unsuitable environments for the care of the acutely ill. The first consideration remains true, notwithstanding the reform of the Mental Health Act in 2007. Prisons are not recognised as hospitals or as venues for compulsory psychiatric treatment. 
as can be given in a psychiatric hospital. To my mind, that's correct. Introducing the possibility of compulsory treatment in a penal environment risks blurring the boundaries and the separation between treatment and punishment. Secondly, and I'm going to take the third consideration at this point, that prisons are not therapeutic environments, and we'd probably all agree on that. Hospitals deliver care addressing an individual's needs. Prisons are run on regime lines. Hospitals are about empowerment. Prisons are about incapacitation. But there are also many features of life in prison that are anti-therapeutic. There's a lack of privacy, perhaps a degree of um, overcrowding, there's dislocation or isolation from social networks that would be supportive. There's perhaps a relative lack, at least, of a meaningful activity. And certainly there's uncertainty about uh, their future prospects. And this was all recognised by HM Inspectorate of Prisons, who pointed out that prisons are primarily about deterrence and punishment. And that challenging environment is hardly going to foster recovery from a serious mental illness. A study that was published a couple of years ago in the British Journal of Psychiatry looked at the effects of mental health during the early stages of imprisonment in over 3,000 prisoners. Overall, there was no clear evidence of a universal detrimental impact on mental health. But is that really the point? Should we continue with something just because it is not bad? If one goes into the detail, a slightly different picture emerges. It was found remand prisoners had a significantly higher risk of deteriorating in prison and those who fared most poorly were the ones suffering from the serious mental illnesses. The study was limited to the first two months in custody and it demonstrated that the symptom prevalence was highest in the first week and that really just underscores that that's the period of highest risk and greatest vulnerability. Jill mentioned the rate of suicides. A third of all suicides in prison occur within the first week in custody. Turning now to my final point uh, from David James, do the prisons have resources to treat the mentally unwell? When I first went to prison, in a professional capacity of course, <laughs> uh, psychiatrists were not a common sight. Medical care was provided by GPs. Working as prison medical officers, psychiatrists would appear for a limited number of sessions. Indeed at that time, health care came under uh, the auspices of the Home Office rather than the Department of Health. As Jill mentioned, that changed in 2006 and responsibility for healthcare in the prison environment is now with the Department of Health. Mental health service delivery inside prison can be divided into two. The first branch is the healthcare wing, a discrete unit for prisoners suffering acute mental health problems, many of whom might be waiting transfer from prison to hospital. There are continuing problems with lengthy delays before transfer occurs, as was mentioned, and that, it should be remembered, is for the group that have already been accepted for admission to hospital. The second branch undertakes the assessment, care and treatment of prisoners on ordinary location in the prison wings. This is the community in which these mental health in-reach teams, as they're known, work. It was originally envisaged that they would focus on the severe and enduring mental illnesses, but it's been difficult to hold to that boundary because of the very high levels of psychiatric morbidity that 
across both the, the primary care, that's the GP level, and the secondary or specialist care levels. It does ask difficult questions about service provision for those whose primary condition is personality disorder and substance misuse. Between two-thirds and three-quarters of prisoners referred to in-reach teams have had prior contact with mental health services. If you turn that around, between a third and a quarter who have not had previous contact with services prior to coming to prison are referred to the psychiatric services. And this would seem to indicate either a difficulty in accessing mental health services in the community or perhaps it reveals the potency of the penal environment in aggravating symptoms of mental illness. Finally, I'll say just a few words about the principle of equivalence. The principle argues that prisoners are entitled to the same standard of health care as they would have were they not in prison. And this has uh, underpinned the development of uh, prison-based mental health care, including the introduction of mental health in-reach teams, analogous to community teams serving the general population. It's been helpful in driving systemic improvements, but prisons are not the equivalent to the community in a number of ways. Jill illustrated that very graphically with the table of prevalence figures for mental disorder showing increases several fold for prisoners. Although illness in prisons is excessive, prisons are not inherently places of treatment. They function as mental illness recognition centres. To enforce a measure of community equivalence within prison healthcare would be to impose standardisation on two factors which are inherently dissimilar. As was mentioned with colleagues, I've been involved in exploring how a human rights-based approach to healthcare and prisons could be a more appropriate framework to adopt. This is the AAAQ model, that services should be available, accessible, acceptable and of good quality, and it operationalises the right to health, which comes from the United Nations. Our argument is that this framework can act as a paradigm for assessing progressive realisation of that right. That links back to, to Jill's presentation and returns me to the theme of the quotation that I started with, so perhaps is a good point to finish. Thank you very much. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Tim. Very, very, very diverting talk. Uh, Anita. Well, I'm going to come at this from a slightly different perspective, really. I am not an expert in mental health, and I'm not a lawyer. But I work for the Howard League for Penal Reform, which is probably the oldest penal reform organisation in the world. And we were trying to look at things and make change, try to make the penal system work effectively and humanely. We also have a little mission statement that currently reads, less crime, safer communities, fewer people in prison. So we are a reductionist organisation. So a lot of what I say will be taken from the premise that I think a vast majority of the people we currently send to prison could be self safely dealt with and their offending behaviour dealt with in other ways, be it through diversion, community sentences and other ways. So I think a lot of people that we're currently sending to prison, with or without, as Jill says, mental health issues, may not be there. 
And the things that I'm going to raise, I'm going to signpost a series of issues that I think are important and strike me when I think about the use of imprisonment and putting that alongside mental health issues and mentally disordered offenders that we find there. But not as an expert with mental health, any issues around mental health. So it's a layperson's perspective. So I think the key question we need to ask ourselves is what do we think prison is for? And that can be the starting point that we can inform ourselves about who should end up in prison. I think, well, we know for a start, we've gone through the justifications for punishment, and that's, that's quite uh, often stated point of view, and we can go through those and we can say yay or nay. I think another issue that we're probably getting more towards a little bit now, it's about just it, it's taking that incapacitation argument a little bit further, and I think we're just holding, warehousing, as it was once described, people in prison, because we're not quite sure how else to deal with them. We want to do something, and we want to punish, but we're there there. So I think prison is a last resort, but I think it's increasingly used as an ever-expanding safety net, and I think that's an issue that we need to think about. Why is it being used as a safety net, particularly maybe for mentally disordered offenders? I have a current prison population figure from last Friday, the 11th of October, which tells us there are 84,832 people in our prison system. Most are men, um, nearly 4,000 of them are women. But that number is just over 7,000 people over the CNA, Certified Normal Accommodation the safe regulated figure for the prison should hold. So they're overcrowded. They've, they've got too many people. And that overcrowding isn't sort of uniform across the system. It's in certain places. There are doubling up of cells. Our local prisons, the places you all know, the Pentonvilles, the strange ways, the local prisons that serve the courts that have the people coming directly from the courts with unknown issues that they have to be dealt with. So there are issues about what we do with people. And of course, an overcrowded system has issues about access to regime activities. What can people do while they're in prison? And that has a real impact on people's ability to cope with imprisonment. Then we've got a number of issues about remand prisons that have been talked about, and there's lots to be said about those, but we've got a short period of time. And I think we've also got the issue between the revolving short sentence prisoners that come through our doors and the indeterminate and long sentence prisoners, some serving whole life tariffs, and about how that affects health, coping, mental health. And I think that's it. So overall, although we have a snapshot today of 84,000 plus, Every year, many more thousands of people will experience prison, and the impact of prison will touch many more people's lives through their support networks, their families. So there's a lot of people that are affected by what have been called the pains of imprisonment. Okay. I think a figure that I came across when I was thinking about this, which struck me, was that Martin Neri, who used to be the Director General of the Prison Service, in 2002, uh, stated there was seven times, a seven-fold increase in the number of prisoners displaying mental, health, uh, mental illness since the late 1980s, and he was speaking in 2002. Now, Melton Neri, although he was Director General of the Prison Service, came from a background of mental health. 
And so for, it was, that was quite interesting for me because he was talking about it in quite vague terms, displaying mental illness. But obviously he comes from a position of knowledge and I was saying, but that's quite interesting. And for me, coming from a social policy background here at the LSE, there's a lot to be said about the other policies that interplay with criminal justice policy and the law and about what we're doing that actually may cause some of those problems. So the care and the community policies that were started in the 1980s, how have social policies and healthcare policies contributed to a position where we may have an increasing proportion of people in our prison system with mental health problems? I think that needs to be thought about and about how we're using prison and maybe as that safety net. Um, and it was quite striking today that with this talk that there was this number of beds in the community, the figures coming out. I heard a radio interview with a member of SANE, the mental health charity, talking. And although the figure from 2011 was startling enough, she said that there were 60,000 fewer beds since the 1980s that were available for mental health illness. So, I mean, that shows the shrinkage of mental health beds which I'm equivocal about as being part of the answer. I'm not sure, as I said, I'm a reductionist. I don't see what's the role of total institutions and institutions and how that plays out and what sort of provision we might want. But it actually shows to me a shrinking of mental health provision. Other question I have in terms of people being sent to prison with mental health illness is this issue around dual diagnosis. And it strikes me in the people that I meet in prison and the work that I do around prison that dual diagnosis, having a mental health uh, issue that needs to be looked at and an addiction issue in particular and about how that is played out and who gets access to services and where the sort of ball lands and how that plays out is a really important issue and about the need for integrated care about how that actually plays out in terms of people getting the right care in the community, if possible, that might stop the need for prison, or even once they're in prison, about how that plays out. And I think that's something which we need to think about, that interplay between addictions on one hand and mental health issues on another. As I said, these are just pointers and issues rather than a coherent argument for anything at the moment. I do think... With my, I've worked with the Howard League for 20 years. I do think, from my experience, that you do see prison exacerbating mental health issues. It's not an easy environment. Closed institutions, it's regimented, noisy, and coping in that environment is quite, can be difficult. And I think one of the things that I have seen and know from the work that I've done is that people display mental health illnesses in custody that are not seen in the community. It could be some, a trigger for things that are, are underneath and lying there. And I think that's the interesting interview between the diagnosed, discernible mental health illness and those things that are triggered by imprisonment. So that's an issue we need to think about and about what the environment does to people. Um, I think there are also issues around appropriate information following people into custody. I know from the work that I've done on suicides and self-harm in prison that quite often people are not acknowledged. The services handover is often inadequate and people are not being told when there are issues of vulnerability, mental health, people showing suicidal age ideation and things like that are not transferred from one service to another. And going on from the statistic that Tim gave us, 
6% of self-harm incidents occur on the day of arrival in a prison. And it's those immediate sharing of information, information sharing, which are important. Um, thinking about, I think another issue is about staffing of prisons. We've not, I think there are two issues at the moment. I think it's the right staffing balance and the, the appropriate skill base within our prisons, be it healthcare, staff that are dedicated or otherwise. But I also think we're actually facing a system now with staff shortages and staff numbers are being reduced at the moment. So how do people form relationships, understand when people are feeling vulnerable, support people when they're actually overstretched and they're actually, their ratios of staff numbers to prisoners? So it's a basic caring, whether you're mentally ill or not, and I think that will actually impact upon mentally disordered prisoners more because of the time, the relationships on which I think prison should be based will be diminished. It will be about routines, counting, numbers. As I heard a paper last week or the week before by a professor of law, Noel Whitty, talking about thinking about human rights and suicide numbers in terms of numbers, about human rights, about how the cell size is about the, the number, th I can't remember what the number was, but there's a, apparently you can equate your human rights and cell size to a number. And things, he was talking about numbers taking precedence. And I think that's quite interesting. Um, I think maybe another thought is, and I don't know where this sits with my colleagues here, but healthcare provision is now going to be not with PCTs, because that's not the group gone. So the equivalent thing was not for the PCTs now providing it's NHS England. How will that change it? But I also wonder whether the Francis report into the healthcare problems at Staffordshire Hospital might have some issues that may be transferable to the prison system. Because I think some of the inadequacies that were uncovered in the hospital uh, replicate and mirror some of the problems that we see in our prisons and whether the same sorts of solutions might be transferable. Now, we, it's something we, our lawyers are looking at because we have a legal team and one of our young people, there's a case, and they're thinking about this as maybe something that they can apply and use. And I do think there may be something there, looking outside the prison system and other things that maybe give us ideas about how to look after people with mental health issues in prison. As has been touched on, we do see that mental disordered prisoners do end up in the segregation units for long periods. I think the quote that Jill gave from Bronzefield Prison is not untypical, but I hope it is diminishing. It's people doing their best sometimes, don't know how to deal, and, but the, the time was totally inappropriate when they were quoting in the Bronzefield one, but I think things like that are important. I think there are issues about engagement in regimes because of overcrowding that are positive and if we're going to think about how easy it is for staff to engage with a, a difficult prisoner as they would see it because of mental health problems, low-lying personality disorders which means people may not be the easiest and it's about that sort of engagement, how people are then treated and how things like parole board hearings and how evidence is gathered on things like that to aid their release. And I think those are issues that we need to think about how we think about the equivalence and the necessary part of regimes that are needed for have you got that time? <laughs> okay. Um, for those people. And I think preparation for the release for mentally disordered uh, prisoners is really important unless they're going to be caught in the revolving door because things like uh, accommodation, family support, access to services are really important unless otherwise they just keep we get, go into the cycle of not getting the appropriate report. 
So, okay, I've identified lots of issues and things that I think are interesting and problematic. There are three things that I've picked up on that I think are pointers for change. Support for mental health needs in the communities. So going back to the social policies and healthcare policies, I think we need to revisit those and see what we can do to support people prior to getting in the chaotic, needy position. Now that's whether it's mentally ill or otherwise. I think we need to think about rebalancing reuse of prison and community sentences. If sentencing is largely about normative compliance and enabling the positive, a development of positive citizenship, perhaps the use of prison should be more parsimonious. Perhaps we should use it as that last resort. If that's what we want to achieve in prison, and I think it is, we want safer communities, we don't want to be victims of crime, so I think we need to think about how we rebalance that. And we've done some work in a pamphlet called Intelligent Justice, which is around that type of issue. And I think we need to think about developing prison as a place that is able to meet the underlying needs of those people there and enable them to make positive changes. If we are going to help people change and there be some sort of redemption and change in people's life, I think the environment should be put in place for them to do that. So I do think we do can, there are things we can do, but I do think we are actually not addressing those issues at the moment and we need to rethink and reimagine what our prisons are for. Thank you. Thank you very much, marvellous. Uh, now you're a reasonably traditional audience. I don't see many computers. I think they're called devices. But remember, you can, uh, you can comment on this thing. Hashtag LCPA. So feel free to do so. We won't stop you. Uh, we have about 25 minutes left. Uh, we've got the panel. We've heard from all three. I'm going to take questions, comments. Thank you very much. Very quick. You shall be my model. You should be short, succinct, give your name, and then we'll take the gentleman whose hand went up here. We're going to take the panel after each one and the lady right at the end. So you're going to have to be very quick, panel, and possibly not all three in one go. Madam, let's get us started. Uh, your, your name and the next person is there, and then the other person's in well, greenish, isn't it? Away you go. Hi, uh, thank you very much for everything you've all said. My name is Alyssa and my question is um, whether the reason behind uh, the lack of uh, integration of healthcare for people with mental difficulties in prisons is due to uh, moral biases masking themselves as proper punishments or I'm sorry, I phrased this the whole entire thing wrong, I'll start again. Um, given how many people are in universities at the moment doing psychology and how many specialists we have in Britain, I find it ironic that there isn't enough care in prisons. Do you think this is a relationship between staff cutbacks or to do with moral biases presenting themselves as something else? Okay, great. Is there a particular one if you want to jump up on that one? I think Tim? we're looking a bit at Tim here. Thank you. Um, I think traditionally prisons have been very much about just detaining people. Less, um, and I'm thinking over a time period, certainly that goes back before I started in forensic psychiatry 25 years ago. Um, they weren't well staffed. It was about holding people until they'd served their sentence. There was less emphasis on meaningful activity, certainly about specialised treatment. 
That's changing. Uh, there aren't enough psychologists in hospital, never mind in prison. Um, and I, I think there is a lot more that needs to be done. Make a plug for the AAAQ model, which talks about having availability of the right level, the right type of treatments. Um, and again, that's a way of measuring um, realization of that right to health, which applies in prison as well as in hospital. Okay, brilliant. I, I might bring some other colleagues in later, but we'll take this gentleman and there's a microphone going down to the lady whose hand is now going up again to show that she's the next. Thank you. Sir, name uh, and quick question or comment. Jacob Taylor, um, I agree with what Anita said, which is the question is about is it an injustice, and perhaps that's irrelevant. The question is, is it good policy? And everything that the Howard League seems to publish says that prison is not a particularly great place to rehabilitate anyone. So my question is, if the evidence suggests it's not good at rehabilitation across the board, why on earth would it be a good place to send people with mental health issues? Thanks, Jilly. I think that's, uh, well, I think it's you. I, I mean, I, I would just say very simply, I agree. Um, I, but I would say on top of that, we do have something called a community order with a mental health treatment order attached to it. And those orders are shamefully underused by the courts. Um, it's the obvious way of trying to combine some kind of punitive element within the community with some kind of treatment uh, facility as well, and they're just not used. Yeah, great. And did you want to say? Yeah, uh, I think so. I think punishment and public opinion is one of those funny things. People, uh, this politicians, are always seeming to talk about ratcheting up punishment. People need to do this, that, and the other. Yeah, as Jill was saying, when you talk to people rationally and ask them, in scenarios, what would you want if somebody did this, that, and the other? The actual responses are much lower. So I think there's a mismatch there, and there's a lot of public education to be going on, not just with public politicians, but also our sentences about what does make a difference. And I think that that's the mismatch where we really do need to make a difference at the moment, because evidence is poor about what prisons can receive. We see the reconviction rates, we see all those types of things across the board. We see people being treated badly. And actually, we want people to change for the better. We know look, work by Shad Maruna and others talk about redemption and actually thinking about people think people can change. So we've actually got to think about that. I mean, so I think it's a lot of public education is going on to try and actually bridge the gap between what people perceive to be the case and what people want and the reality. Thanks. Uh, Tim, briefly on this one, if you may. And um, I was going to add to that, I think sentences need to be people doing the sentencing need to, to change. To transfer, to put someone in hospital having committed an offence under the Mental Health Act, there is no link between the severity of the offence and going in. But when I was doing uh, court diversion schemes, often the magistrates would be saying, but this is a serious offence, you can't possibly be telling me put him in the community. And they were looking for some sort of um, approximation of a tariff. Yeah, good. Thank you. Uh, madam, name, question. Are you waving at somebody who's trying to catch my eye? Very good. You're next. Good. I thought you were waving at a friend. Uh, we might come down here. Madam, away you go. Um, hi, I'm Sabrina. I have two questions. Sorry, what's your name? My name is Sabrina. Choose one of your questions, Sabrina. But they're both really great questions. <laughs> <laughs> I promise. Okay, first one. Very short um, questions. Quick. Okay, so first one has to do with mental health stigma and prejudice and discrimination that prisoners might be facing in the mental health um, system. 
and I'm just wondering if there are if if anything is being done about that and that exacerbating the manifestation of various type of types of mental health issues among people. Two, um, there was a mental health service user movement in the 80s, and I'm just wondering if that had any impact um, on uh, regulations and laws um, among prisoners who are also experiencing mental health issues. Um, I know the mental health service user movement here in the UK was pretty big, and so I'm just wondering if that somehow trickled down to the prison system. Great. Thanks, Sabrina. Very succinct. I wonder whether we have answers to those questions, the stigma and the <laughs> 1980s one. Uh, you've puzzled the community here. Excellent, all the questions were. Because the poems are excellent. Yeah, well, you've stumped them. They can't even choose one to answer. I, I would certainly argue that the issue of stigma um, is very much associated with the problems that people with mental disorder find when coming to the point of release and trying to convince the parole board that they are fit to release because they have both the nature of their conviction that sent them there in the first instance and then the overlying anxieties about whether or not their disorder was something that contributed to their offending. And if it was something that contributed to their offending, all the time the disorder persists, it's going to be very difficult for a parole board to feel confident about release. So I think that the notion that you pick up on is absolutely right. There is double discrimination for people who are both offenders and have mental health difficulties. Okay, great. Do we need clarification on, this, on the second bit or should we just leave it for now? We can talk about it afterwards. Uh, let's get the second one a bit later on. With this lady over here and this gentleman who's waving a pencil and a piece of paper and this lady whom I thought had met a friend. Madam. No, no, sir, wait, wait a moment. Yeah, I'm, I'm worried about... Just say who you are, uh, oh, if you don't member, mind. Member of the public. Member of the public. An, yeah. an, M, an MP, we're honoured. Away you go. Okay, I'm, I'm actually very worried about distinguishing between mental illness and non-mental illness. And the first speaker said something about the difficulty of distinguishing. And uh, worried about the lack of distinction between violent crime and crime about property. I'd like to totally, totally agree that, uh, totally question people being in jail for committing crimes against property. In the list of Uh, when it comes to violence, is there something else which is saying no, yeah. which isn't exactly the same as, uh, I don't know what denunciation okay, we'll, means, we'll that sounds nasty and I would think this is very important and I'm a little bit worried about what goes under the heading of compassion and mitigation. Okay, we've, you've given us a menu. In this way, and oh, just one, yep. one last question. No. Are mental hospitals any better than prisons? They used not to be. Have they improved? I've heard things where they haven't. Are mental health services as good as, as they seem to be? I have yeah. enormous doubts. Thank you very much, Member of the Public. You've covered philosophy, underlying theology, a bit of the devil in there with denunciation and ending with mental hospitals. There's a menu. I'm, I'm, I'm going to insist that you discriminate. Um, I'll go for denunciation. It, it simply means that there is a public condemnation of what the offender has done. Wait. No, I know. We'll, we'll follow that up at the end. We'll follow that up at the end. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, we understood the point. Uh, do we have any reactions quickly? Because we have a lot of people with hands I up. Can say something about um, hospitals against prisons? Yeah, let's hear that. I work in a hospital and I think it's better than a prison and I've been to several prisons. Um, They are very harsh environments, I think. The hospitals, and it comes down to conditions and one doesn't have to go too far back in in history, recent history, to, to see large psychiatric institutions, but today's hospitals are very different. They are therapeutic. They're much more outward-facing, looking from the beginning about what it is that's required for discharge and how that can be achieved. Thanks, Tim. I'm going to skip you on this one initially. We've got the gentleman who's now on, and then there's a gentleman right at the back in the same panel. But this gentleman first. Sir, you've got yes, the floor. Yes. Short and short, name yes, I'm very short. Could you just say anything about the problem? Do you want to give us your name? Or Robin Hanna. Robin Hanna. Thank you, Robin. And I work in the field of mental health. Could you say anything about the... Um, risks that mental health users have of themselves being victims of crime. Isn't that just as big a problem as perpetrating such crimes? Thank you. And the microphone goes back to the man at the end, and we'll get you in a bit shortly, sir. Who wants to take that one up? Is there a you plural there, Robin, or is it just one person in particular? I think the answer is is very simple. Yes, uh, people with mental health difficulties are as likely to be, if not more likely to be, the victims of crime than they are to be the perpetrators of crime. And they are clearly people who are particularly vulnerable in a prison setting. Um, Whether or not you would regard the kinds of treatment they get there as a form of assault or not, I think is quite another matter, but they clearly spend part of their prison sentences in some fear about what might happen to them. Anything to add? Uh, We've we've time to come back in. I was going to reinforce that and say you're absolutely right. We hear in the press and on television, etc., about the risk that mentally ill people cause to others, and I think that's a product of its comparative rarity. What we don't hear about is the number of times that the patients themselves are victims, and I'm not talking just about in hospital, they're also victims of their illness, and the suicide rate amongst people with schizophrenia can be as high as 10%. Thanks, Tim. Uh, Gentleman at the end who should have a microphone. Yeah. Uh, Peter Ramsey from the Law Department at LSC. Uh, But an outsider completely to this discussion. But something that that came up didn't make sense to me, so just some clarification, really. You you said that uh, that there should be the prisoners, the claim is that uh, prisoners should have an equal right to health care to non prisoners, and that seems a plausible claim that punishment should only, imprisonment should only be a loss of liberty, otherwise, as far as possible, equal rights. Uh, and that makes sense to me, but that seems to have very radical implications. It has much more radical implications than you suggested, unless I've misunderstood something. So, if mental hospitals are much better places to have that, that either suggests a radical transformation of what we do in prisons, that somehow we make prisons therapeutic environments, which would be extremely expensive, or radical decarceration. Um, if, that's, if, if this is real. So in, is that the implication? You didn't draw that out. And two, is there a legal basis on which to make those kind of claims so that you might even see the sorts of things we saw in relation to the Supreme Court decision with respect to the California prisons um, where you know, uh, courts were willing to make a radical decarceration on, on a human rights ground, essentially? Thanks, Peter. Uh, I think this is good. Yes, I mean, I, I would certainly say that I think you're right to say that it, 
the consequence of what I'm arguing is very much in favour in, in of a huge scaling down of the use of imprisonment. And I would be very much, I mean, other people have thought about this before me. Um, Barbara Hudson, Thomas Mathiasen, I mean, people have really gone into it in considerable detail. And the conclusions that they have come to is the very much that prison is a redundant institution. We ought to be thinking in much more radical ways about how we tackle the problems that offenders pose to us and the particular problems that people with mental disorder who coincidentally offend cause. So yes, I think it, requ it requires a very radical solution. Thanks. I'm going to bring you in obviously towards the end. Uh, amazingly, it's the most extraordinary response I've seen for ages here. We've got a lot of people with their hands up. Uh, and we ne we've neglected the centre, so the lady at the back is going to come in in a minute. You, yes, and blue. The gentleman's been catching my eye since practically yesterday. But we start with the lady on the right hand side who has the microphone. Elaine Player from the School of Law King's College and it really builds on something that uh, Peter Ramsey was just mentioning about perhaps the need for radical change. I, I think we need to inject a degree of urgency into some of the issues that uh, Jill and others have raised here today because the radical change is already happening. Um, as a consequence of the Bradley report there was a significant shift of resources from the Department of Health to the prison service for the treatment of people with personality disorder. So we are now developing a whole series of therapeutic interventions in prison. So my concern about uh, imprisoning the mentally disordered and manifesting justice, I would say I'm also very concerned about treating the mentally disordered in prison because the shift of resources has been a deliberate one because you can treat more people for less and it's been developed despite recognition of the inadequacy of the staff resources that we have in prison to treat these people. So we're developing a series of programs without appropriate, inter without appropriate interventions of staff. Uh, I, I think it was somebody said earlier about staff cuts. It's part of that. And I'm very concerned about the prison's duty of care to the people who are being subjected to these programs without appropriate uh, facilities in place to deal with the difficulties that they are inevitably going to raise. So I think it's urgent. I think that the issues that Jill is raising, they're not just nice academic debates that we've been having over a number of years. There is now an urgency because the revolution, the rehabilitation revolution is already underway and we do need to put some, some brakes on that, I think. Right, I think I'm going to let you comment on that in the summary. Uh, can I do that? Because it's a comment. Isn't it a comment, really? Thanks, Elaine. Uh, and it's, it's not a way of avoiding it. It's trying to get as much in as we can. Uh, the gentleman, have you got a microphone yet? Uh, yes, I have. Thank you. Uh, my name is Anilak, and I just wanted to ask, uh, what's the level of political support um, on the, some of the recommendations that you've outlined tonight, either it be from a budget allocation or a policy advocacy or you know, changes in the legislation and so forth? Thank you. That's one for you, I think. But yeah. by all means, Tim, from your experience, comment and Anita too. Jim. There was a sentence in my, my talk that I didn't give which says that um, politicians, when asked about overcrowding, 
very quickly reach for the mentally disordered as the category of people that they want to take out of prison and put into hospital. And when they say that kind of thing, I become quite inflamed because it just suggests to me that they really haven't thought carefully enough about the consequences of what they are saying. So I think it's part of the political rhetoric. I don't think um, there is any great political enthusiasm for doing anything about it. That said, I think it is worth observing that when Ed Miliband um, addressed the Royal College of Psychiatrists um, earlier on this year or last year, he said that the issues that we face with respect to people with mental ill health in our community as are, are as, he said, are, they are as profound as the difficulties that we faced when we first set up the National Health Service. So, I like to think that there is some cognizance there of the difficulties that, that we face, but whether or not it will ever come to anything, I don't know. Anita? Um, I don't think we're, I'm not as optimistic about therapeutic interventions as what we're doing. I think there are issues about, about whether prison can ever be therapeutic and address these things. I don't think it's the environment. Whatever you do to dress it up, I don't think there are issues. I think we're expanding our capacity for penal incarceration. And that will mean that more people get sucked in. But equally with the therapeutic communities, I think they're often interventions that happen within a short time period. So you might do good things for a short while with people in prison and support, but they actually then move on or go to a different prison where the type of regime is not available. And actually some of the good work gets undone. So actually some of the support works that we do have in prisons are not there's some good stuff going on. There are good people in prisons. But as a system, I think it's failing. And I think we're actually increasing the likelihood of failure by new super prisons. And although there are resettlement, there's pros and cons on each side. But I think we're expanding our penal capacity, which can't be a good thing. Either or, and the comment, Tim. Want to go back to the floor? Um, I think um, the stigma on two fronts, as was mentioned before, and it's coming back to a question that was earlier. That there's stigma about being mentally ill and the stigma about being a mentally disordered offender. And I think the politicians are getting the message more on the former rather than the latter. So there's, there's more work done, particularly in that area. Great. What I'm going to do now, we're, 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 we're going to get this lady over here, and we've got this gentleman on the, in the main bank here, and then I think we might be beginning to think about wrapping up, but we'll see. We might try and slip you in, but we'll see. Look, there's fantastic numbers of you. Uh, get us started. Um, my name's Helena, and I work for the Centre for Mental Health, and um, I was just curious to get the panel's opinion on how do you think mental health treatment requirements could be used more widely? So how can you encourage magistrates to sort of take them up and give them to people instead of sending them to jail? So it's quite specific about, I mean, let's take it as specific, that last example of something that can be done. Your stats were haunting. What can you do? Um, education, I think, to start off with. But the, the, the real problem is that you need the resources there in order for people to be able to be recommending to the courts that those kinds of interventions um, are taken up as an alternative to to, to uh, prison. And that's why I think Anita is so right that you can't think about this problem solely as a problem of imprisonment. It's a societal problem that requires a rebalancing of the way in which we address these issues. So, education but resources. Okay. Uh, sir. Uh, my name is Frank McGuinness. I'm a law student here at LSE. Um, so I think it's uncontroversial by this point to note that the current ballooning 
prison population was a function of Blair's election strategy in 1997 with his tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. Um, and I think that what, what happened there, like my analysis is that, you know, that it got turned into a political football and, and the left, the Labour Party was traditionally viewed as, as soft on crime and that was their election strategy. Um, and we witnessed the the kind of harmful social consequences that that's had. Um, so I guess what I'm asking is, is there any evidence to suggest that the discourse has changed such that the left isn't going to be pushed into this tough on crime stance? Um, and I mean, we've talked already about rhetoric, um, the, the rhetoric surrounding this debate. There seems to be a disconnect between what the, the um, what academia is saying and, and what the, you know, um, the politicians are prepared to countenance. So I guess what I'm asking for is like your perceptions of the, the current kind of political uh, attitude towards this question running up to the, the 2015 election. Right. I mean, that's great. And because we can tie in what Elaine was saying about urgency and we can end on this because we are, I'm afraid, going to end because I have to propagandize from some future events in a minute. We're going to end on this note from the three. If you maybe start with you, Tim, then Anisha, and then end with Jill, and then we wrap it up. Just as a general comment. Stuff that's emerged from the course of the last half hour, uh, that comment, Elaine's, you've got about 45 seconds. <laughs> um, 40 now. Um, I was going to go back to the point about the radical change. I think maybe the, the radicalness was where the funding comes from. There's still a long way to go if you look at the budgets. The, the budget for secure hospital care is something like 925 million per year. The budget for the whole of prison mental health, community, forensic, psychiatry, court diversion is 59 million. So there's a great disparity between the two. There's an inverse relationship between the size of the budget and the number of people that they deal with. So there's more that can be done in that area. It does beg the question of whether putting more resources into prison is actually going to make it more therapeutic, because I think inherently prisons are anti-therapeutic. Um, so that then, we then look towards the community and the community solutions. Yeah. Thanks. Great. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, Anita. Well, I think I'll come back to this point about can we change the nature of the debate? Can we start thinking about prisoners not being the solution to all societal ills and punishment? And I think we, it's something we need to do. It's about education. But I think there's a lot of work to be done, not just with the outputs that we've talked about in terms of sentences and politicians and using academic theoretical debates, but I think one of the biggest players that we've got to start thinking about changing the language and changing the tone is with our media. Because I think that's where we've got to start with the discourse going up to the election. To the politicians not to be afraid to think about things differently, use different language, use different solutions without having a media hounding them of being soft on crime, which is, I think, where we've got some of these problems coming from. So there's a lot of work to be done, but, you know, if we can get more people thinking about things differently, if we can actually change the nature of the language of the debate, I'm hopeful. But Great, thanks. And that does take us to Frank, yes. and not forgetting Elaine. No, no, I Elaine. I, I agree with Anita. I don't think politicians are a lost cause, and I do think it's very notable that Ken Clark's green paper, Breaking the Cycle, came very early in the election round for the coalition government. So I, I do worry about what will happen in the run-up to, to the next election. So I'm, I'm, I'm open-minded about that. With respect to Elaine's point, um, I, I think she's absolutely right. I mean, we do have um, a number of obviously conflicting objectives in terms of our philosophies of punishment. 
Um, particularly since the 2003 Criminal Justice Act was passed, we now have this smorgasbord of sentencing objectives. Under the 1991 Act, we had a much clearer, albeit much criticised, but much clearer approach, which said there should be proportionality in sentencing and desert was going to be the primary objective. So that was kind of quite clear cut. The difficulty with having a smorgasbord of objectives is that they conflict with one another. So that it's all very well, as I know Elaine would say, putting people into treatment programs. But what you're going to be doing then is drawing things out of them that you're not necessarily going to be in a position to either support them within the prison environment, so you're making things worse for them. And the things that you draw out from them may well run contrary to their own objectives in terms of convincing a board that uh, the problem that they are safely released. So the object of treatment, the, um, the, the preparedness to, to fess up one's own worrying fantasies um, is not going to go down well with a parole board that is worried about your future offending behaviour. So there are just conflicting objectives there that we don't properly manage within a prison environment. Right. Thanks, Jill. Uh, this is a sample. It's a first-class sample, I have to say. Fantastic interaction with you all. And thanks for all your questions. Sorry, many of you weren't able to get a question answered. But this is a sample of the kind of events we have. We have an amazing one. It's going to be very controversial in a couple of weeks on rape law and whether a rape law needs to be changed and is rape as a crime special. We've got Mr. Justice Peter Jackson coming in a bit later on to talk about that extraordinary jurisdiction he's got in mental capacity. So we've got these events. Uh, follow them on this. And we have an extremely enterprising person called Kirsty. Do you hear Kirsty? Where are you? There you are. Kirsty's running, and you'll be pleased with this, the uh, LSE Howard League Society. And it's a fantastic title, Lifer on the Loose. And you've got some guy called Ben Gunn, who used to be the Chief Constable at Cambridge, but I don't think it's that Ben Gunn. And he's discussing his experience in prison, where he served 32 years, and his career as a criminal justice policy consultant, writer and campaigner. So go to that. It's in Tower 1, room 103, between 12 and 1 o'clock. Kirsty will tell you all about it. 12 and 1 o'clock tomorrow. Tomorrow, isn't that right? Uh, and uh, let's thank a few people. Uh, the stewards... I don't think you are stewards all the time. You have other jobs, don't you? You put those red things on. Well, you're fantastic. LSE's, uh, LSE's conferences office, I think, is without parallel, actually, in, in England in terms of the service they provide. And we want to thank them. Uh, we want to thank Tim uh, coming in for this, especially making the journey in. You know, it's a fantastic contribution. Thank you. Anita, uh, despite what she said was a poor voice, but I think the voice held up very well. So thank you very much. But mainly, of course, uh, you know, demonstrating... I thought with that paper that law does matter and matters most effectively in an interdisciplinary environment where you can interact with people with specialisms elsewhere and with an audience with different specialisms, including our Member of Parliament, or was it a member of the public? Uh, Jill, so let's end by giving Jill a tremendous round of applause, please. Thank you.